0: It's Monday, May fifteenth, twenty twenty-three, from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pasca. A powerful cyclone has hit the coasts of Myanmar and Bangladesh. The name of that cyclone?
1: Now, Cyclone Mocha is also impacting the world's largest refugee camp, where around one million vulnerable people live in makeshift homes.
0: I disagree. It affected, not impacted, the refugee camp, but also more to the point, it mostly missed the refugee camp. Yes, thousands of refugees were relocated and shanties were destroyed, but not the direct hit as feared. So maybe you think impact has more of an effect than say effect, and it does, but in this case, the idea you wanna convey is less of an impact than what was feared. Words are important, which is why I was intrigued by the word you just heard.
1: Elsewhere, tropical cyclone Mocha made landfall over Myanmar today, battering the coast with heavy rain and winds up to
0: 130 miles an hour. The storm lashed the sprawling Rohingya refugee camps in Bangladesh, but the country was spared a direct hit. So far, officials report three casualties, all in Myanmar to the east. Mocha. Cyclone Mocha. Deadly weather event, intriguing name. The Mocha Cyclone, available for a limited time at Dairy Queen. Well, actually named cyclones, which is to say giving cyclones names, that's only been occurring for a limited time, like the Dairy Queen confection. Atlantic hurricanes have been named for decades, once only for women, now for men, or in the cases of gender fluid hurricanes, for whomever. But the cyclone naming movement is specific to each region. And in the Northern Indian Ocean, in the Arabian Sea, and the Bay of Bengal, different countries who are part of a consortium get to pick the names. Bangladesh got first pick, and they went with Nisarga, meaning nature. Up next was India, which went with Gatti, followed by Iran, who took Jalen Carter, tackle out of Georgia, Melkai Bradham number two overall, and eventually to Yemen, which got to Mocha, named after the city in Yemen, Mocha, where, yes, the world first got its coffee. I did not know that. I did not know that about Yemen until a cyclone bashed into the side of a war-torn country thousands of miles away. So, excellent branding exercise, World Meteorological Organization. Now, am I wrong to delight in this bit of knowledge that I took away from a swirling vortex of wind reaching speeds of 130 miles per hour? Is this not the most opportune time to glean a fun fact? Well, as I understand nature, or Nisagra to the Bangladeshis, the cyclone's gonna hit anyway, Might as well learn a little along the way. Cyclone mocha was the strongest cyclone on record, no doubt spurred along by global warming, whereas the iced mocha with a double shot of espresso is the strongest drink on the menu at Pete's Coffee's. You learn something new every day that you're not dodging 130 miles per hour winds. On the show today, not overreacting to the other side's propaganda when it comes to emotionally fraught news events, but first to be a great tennis player, to fool our friends with some sleight of hand, to overcome a phobia that holds us back in life. At some level, we all want to master something. My next guest, New Yorker staff writer Adam Gopnik, has a new book out, The Real Work on the Mystery of Mastery, for which he attempted to master a number of activities from boxing to painting. He joins us to share his insight on mastery, which can be traced back to a very personal problem he was having. Stay tuned, Adam Gopnik, up next... Adam Gopnik, the great New Yorker writer, is out with a couple of new works in print and audio form. He has a uh, podcast series audiobook with Steve Martin, really so many Steves, but I am mostly going to talk about his new book, The Real Work on the Mystery of Magic, in which Mr. Gopnik... Learns to draw, studies magic, learns to make bread, takes boxing and ballroom dancing lessons, and this is the big one: treats his phobia of urinating in public. That was brave of you, Adam.
1: Well, thank you for saying that, Mike, and thank you for bringing it right out. Usually, most of the time in these conversations, the, the host saves it for the for the last ten minutes, right? And then, of oh, right. tar, it's... I
0: noticed I noticed it was stuck inside the book yeah. in the same place as in, well. The
1: last ten minutes to ask about that, and then about appearing with Kate Lanchette. And that's how they 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 make me feel. That, keep me from slamming my laptop shut early in the conversation. But yes, it's the real work, the mystery of mastery, and it's the the accounts, kind of uh, essays and in comic inadequacy for the most part, about my attempt to learn to do various things, which I should add right away, Mike was not done uh as a as a kind of high concept all of these things happened organically over 15 years i've been studying drawing following my 13 year old son to vegas to live among the magicians and then learning to drive a car finally in my 50s and so on but um i shouldn't say and so on because these so ons include then boxing and dancing and other things yeah. but uh it's also an audiobook i should add that we did for uh, we did for pushkin which was a, which was a lot of fun they did a more creative take On an audiobook than the other nine audiobooks that i've done but yeah i mean it was the the idea was that i got obsessed with the whole question of how we get good at doing things at any point in life and even when we don't get good at doing them what's the good it does us that's an even deeper question that's the mystery of mastery if you like and um uh, and that included just as you said it included my own pursuit of my perioresis which is the dignified scientific or pseudoscientific, one might say, name for the extreme shy bladder syndrome, which I have suffered from for 15 years, which makes you unable to urinate in any public place, which is particularly acute on airplanes, for instance, and also just in the course of daily life. And like most phobias of that kind, let's talk about it. One of the things that's true about it is is that you develop over the decades such extremely sensitive coping behaviors and avoidance behaviors that you mostly have learned not to address it. It's like, you know, people who have uh, uh, agoraphobia, fear of public spaces or open spaces, you don't know that they have it because they've gotten to be so skilled at anticipating and avoiding any time they'd have to deal with an open space. And that's the way us perioresis sufferers are. But, you know, it's a trivial, and in its way, it's an embarrassing affliction to confess to. But they're all trivial and embarrassing, all of the phobias that, that afflict us. And as my uh my very dear uh therapist and if the book has one continuity to it which my actually my friend malcolm gladwell pointed out to me i would not have spotted it myself it's the continuity of falling in love with teachers they're the wonderful irascible teachers one after another in the book and as dan rocker pointed out to me uh and his job in life is among other things but essentially is to is to lead men by the hand from one public bathroom to another And he pointed out to me as the essential comfort, everybody is struggling with something. Everybody is struggling with something. And when I'm on the road talking about this, I expected it to be awkward and embarrassing when that chapter came up. But it's just the reverse, Mike. Whenever it comes up, you can feel people relaxing because it's a confession of a vulnerability. And everybody is struggling with something. And when you say that, that looking out over this range of faces, every single person in this room is struggling with some kind of phobia or anxiety disorder, you never get a descending shake of the head. Everybody agrees. Yes, and
0: then the and then the confessions are honesty, if not the bodily fluids flow. But <laughs> but I ask that because, not just because I'm a, a shock jock over here, but because I was most taken on an individual level, and you know this, and I've told you this, I just think you're a, an excellent writer, a fantastic turner of phrases, but the thing that you bring is you're this conceptualizer. And uh, from an individual chapter to chapter, uh basis I very much enjoyed your journey but this one was a very different chapter in a couple of ways and I think it gets to your thesis about mastery one it's the only chapter every other chapter if there were more people who could do it maybe not driving a car but at least knowing how to drive a car the world in general would be a better place the sort of skill where you would say oh more bakers in the world more you know people who could handle themselves with their fists these are just good Good for humanity. I don't know that urinating in public in any way falls into that category. But the other thing I was thinking of is that famous, I think it was Tommy Lasorda quote with Steve Sachs when he was having trouble making the throw from second to first. How many people can hit a 90 mile an hour fastball? One out of every 10,000 people on the planet. How many people can go to their left in the hole and turn a double play like you can? One out of every three million people on the planet. How many people can make the throw to first? everyone but you and it's sort of that level of mastery where it's i don't want to say you abase yourself but you do recognize that mastery can come at very
1: many different levels absolutely and and it's an abject thing to confess to like insomnia is a similar one right which is another disorder that strikes people everybody in the world every mammal in the world falls asleep without difficulty and if you have insomnia You're literally, it's not that you don't want to fall asleep. You literally can't make yourself fall asleep. And it's similar with, with perioresis. I wanted to write about it for two reasons, Mike. One is a performative that uh, um, Mike Nichols once was quoted as saying that if there's not something in every uh, enterprise you undertake, whether it's a play or a movie or a book, that where everybody involved doesn't look at the other people and say, we can't get away with that, can we? We really can't get away with that. That if there isn't one thing like that, that the, the work will lack the element of audacity, which will make it more than, will make it unpredictable in, in, in a way. And I, and I felt that about this confession, this pursuit. And the other reason was, um, very seriously, that it was sort of the way we overcome our phobias is kind of like the black mass of mastery. In other words, one of the things that's foundational in the book, and it isn't, you know, it is no great uh, uh, revelation is that we learn how to do things through small, stubborn, resistant steps, which we persevere in. And if we persevere in them passionately enough, they become, to our shock, a kind of seamless sequence, or at least give the illusion of being a seamless sequence. And we get a huge rush of pleasure from that, the moment when you stop thinking all the time about, okay, jab, jab, cross, hook, you know, when you're when you're boxing, and you just are jabbing and crossing and hooking without naming them. That's a huge kind of, as I call it, a cognitive opiate that we produce for ourselves. Well, dismantling a phobia is the same process in reverse, because what you realize is, is that over time, unconsciously, you built up all these little blocks until you have a structure that's imprisoning you, that's enclosing you. And you have to disassemble it in the same way, you know, going up what the cognitive therapists call the exposure hierarchy. So that if you can't pee in public? Could you pee in a closed stall in a public bathroom? Yeah, I think I could probably handle that. What if the door were open? You know, over weeks and months, you go up this hierarchy, and it's really dismantling um, a mastery, a black mass mastery, an anti-mastery that you've assembled for yourself. So it really, I wanted it to be the, the opposite side of that. And also because, you know, one of the sentences that I at least like in the book is that I say, you know, it's easy to make fun of people who have A minor or shaming or abject afflictions like that. Um, But the truth is, is that, um, you know, we all say, you know, I I cried because I had no shoes until I met a man who had no feet. But the truth is the only way we understand what it feels like to have no feet is when we have no shoes, that that's when our circles of compassion expand, when we understand what it's like to have an affliction, a a form of suffering, however observed. So I wanted to demonstrate both those truths in that chapter.
0: Is it true then for all forms of mastery that to be a master, when mastery kicks in, one way to know it is that you get into this, Oh, okay. Not a pun, but this flow state, this state where you're not, where, <laughs> where your conscious brain isn't really working. And you write about a writer who's a great writer. And then maybe his name is David. I think he used the pseudonym, but then Dave shows up and Dave just knows how to write. And you don't even question how Dave knows how to write, or you're not questioning the mechanics of jab, jab, cross, hook. You're just doing it. Would a real master, when Steven Sondheim writes lyrics and you and I have both read his books on writing lyrics it he's so great at it and yet it doesn't seem to ever come easy so that is my question to be a master at something is it does there have to be elements of it where
1: things come easy two two answers to that question one is in the things we really do well it never comes easy exactly because it comes so easy and by that zen answer what i mean is is that when we're really good at something writing is the is mine um and steve sondheim used to say specifically that he knew he could always write a song he didn't know if it was going to be a good song but it would be a song it would have beginning and an end it would tie together it would rhyme and all of those things and i feel that way when i start a piece no matter what the subject is i know that the piece will be finished and i know that it will have unusual turns it won't be over overly predictable it'll take what i call a left turn into traffic about two-thirds of the way in and so on Um, I know it will be finished, and it will be a piece. It will be an essay. Um, But when we actually are good at something, uh, we can only see the difference. We never see the scale of our own accomplishments. God knows Steve Sondheim didn't. We see only the difference between the scale of our ambitions for our accomplishments and the scale of our accomplishments. So that when I start out writing a piece, when Steve Sondheim started out writing any song, he knew that he could write that song, but he also wanted it to be as homespun as Oscar Hammerstein, as witty as Larry Hart, and as musically profound as Berlioz. And he occasionally reached that mark, but not in his own view. When I start off writing an essay, I expect every sentence to be as psychologically intricate as Proust, as wildly funny as S.J. Perlman, and as rhapsodically sensual as John Updike. And, and then I see that it, it, it is not all of those things at once. So I see the difference in the scale of my ambitions the scale of my accomplishments. The good news is, in things we're less good at, we can actually recognize the scale of our accomplishments because we can can monitor it as it goes up and we take enormous pleasure in it. You know, there's this thing I call sometimes the causal catastrophe. We say um, things are only valuable in as much as they cause some other thing. They're not valuable in themselves. The Mm -hmm. pursuit of mastery of that kind is valuable in itself. If you persevere passionately in pugilism, to make a, an ugly Robin Leach kind of uh, alliteration, but if you do, you get exactly that um, that high, that cognitive opiate, entry into the flow state, that moment of happiness, which is simply absorption in a thing outside ourselves, and it's it's rhapsodic, it's it's uh, animating in every way, and it doesn't matter if you actually are any good as a boxer or not. It's yours for the price of the passionate perseverance. And in that sense, the paradox of it is, is that you can take more profound fulfillment from pursuing something that you're never going to be very good at than you can from the daily labor of something that you actually are good at.
0: It seems easier to recognize mastery when it's a work that's exquisite, that's with, that's been poured over with the uh, in a lapidary attention to detail. But I want to ask maybe not so much about The defining that kind of work of a master, which so clearly sings in every uh, ounce of its being. But I want to ask, I want to ask you about the more everyday mastery. Let's just take some time. Hank Williams once said something like, uh, if a song can't be written in 20 minutes, it ain't worth writing. Are his songs less masterful?
1: Uh, for that than, say, a Sondheim lyric? No, and and not a bit. They're Hank Williams. They're not Steve Sondheim. But what's interesting about both of those great masters, and I'm a huge Hank Williams fan, uh, I got to Hank Williams through Willie Nelson, uh, Mm -hmm. a different kind of master. Um, What they both have in common is an extraordinarily strong individual voice. Now, people don't always think that with Sondheim because Sondheim threw up a kind of uh, squidding screen where he always said, oh, I just write for characters. But in fact, if you think about the body of Sondheim's work, Joni Mitchell isn't as specifically personal as Steve Sondheim is. There's one anthem after another of a a thwarted loneliness, seeking connection and failing to achieve it. Finishing the hat, it's called sometimes being alive at other times, but it came out of Steve Sondheim's soul. And the same thing is true about the plain of songs of alcoholism and longing in in Hank Williams. And exactly that's the kind of the overriding point of of the book is that there's an extraordinary alchemy in in great mastery where you have enormous technical proficiency on the one hand, in singing or in Steve's case in rhyming. But it's always allied to some form of deliberately controlled imperfection, some note, of human failability. I was out at the Bob Dylan Museum in Tulsa, Oklahoma, in the course of my very Willy Loman-like traipsing across America with my book. And there's a beautiful letter from Bob Dylan there, not surprisingly, at the Bob Dylan Museum. Uh, But and in it he mentions that he maybe he doesn't sing as perfectly as other people but he breathes better than anyone else <laughs> what we call bob dylan singing is bob dylan's breathing he does yeah. breathe better than anyone else and the, and we the moment we hear start to hear bob dylan we all realize ah oh, but listen to bob dylan breathe his way through songs it's his entry into a totally original form of singing and that's what i think is the is the is the keynote or is the constant note of mastery is that quality of having someone who's enormously technically proficient in one way, but who is able to add a note of deliberate imperfection. Magicians have a term for this, Mike. They call it too perfect theory. Any trick that's done perfectly will bore the audience. And then it's the magician's job, not just to do it proficiently, but to be so anticipating, empathetically, what the audience expects and play against it, that the trick lands.
0: So you contrast mastery with um, a ubiquitous roteness in so much of life. But I was thinking that with some rote tasks, if you look at them the right way, there can be mastery. And I appreciate them. I don't know if there can be a master toll collector, but I said to myself, it's easier to see why Thomas Keller is a master at being a chef than why Ray Kroc was. But they're both masters in their own way,
1: yeah. are a they? Master- entrepreneur and the other is a, is, a, is a master chef but you know we all make those judgments all the time when you go to what we call in New York coffee shops and are called elsewhere diners right there's one guy who really knows how to make eggs right that's not yeah. you know there's one guy behind the counter and you can watch him you can see the care with which he does it and in my experience actually Mike when you say to ask anybody in any field could be a painter could be a plumber Who's the Willie Maze of, of your field? You never get a bemused shrug. You always get an immediate answer, right? Like who's who's the greatest plumber? And plumbers will say, "Oh, it's Joe Pacatano." And if, until you work with Joe Pacatano, you don't understand how to how to work a pipe, right? People yeah. have a sense of what technical mastery is, but they also have a sense of the power of the individual of individual expertise. In 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 almost everything, there's no when you get together with magicians and you ask who has the best card technique, they all have astounding card techniques that they've worked on for years and years. But they'll all tell you Steve Forte is the greatest card manipulator uh, alive. They don't they even the guys who are almost as good won't dispute that. So I think we all have that sense of it in in things even in what we as I say denigrate or condescend to as the minor arts. Bakers know who the greatest baker is.
0: Yeah, now we get to the tar part of the interview, <laughs> and since and since I know that you embarked on these experiences and mastery over many many years, you when you were approached by Todd Fields to t- take that role in the beginning of the movie, you were mid which uh, which activity? Uh,
1: I was doing boxing at that point, and I was still doing and dancing. I was doing boxing and dancing the pandemic ones and baking. So, boxing, baking, and dancing were very much at the forefront of my imagination because we were we were locked down like everyone else. And so I've
0: heard in other interviews you talk about how you were given that scene to play and you played it, but didn't really know what else was going to go on in the movie. Is that right?
1: I had absolutely no idea. You know, I just was being a good little actor. People somehow think that that scene was improvised. And, you know, we were just not a bit. It was completely written. I was playing a part the part had my name attached to it. It yeah. isn't me. It's not those are not things I would have said. Uh, necessarily. I improvised a single line at one point um, that say she has a big book coming out and uh, it's a great stocking stuffer and I added if you have a very large stocking, and Todd liked that and and said keep it. but then the German assistant director had to lecture the German extras who spoke no English to laugh. But no, I'm I, you know I it, totally uh, written but, and actually at one moment because as you recall at the beginning, she talks about her apprenticeship with Leonard Bernstein. And being very actor-y, I took Todd aside and said, you know, help me with this, Todd, because uh, uh, she couldn't have studied with Leonard Bernstein because Lenny Bernstein was dead by 1991. She would have been three years old. And he gave me the kind of steady, opaque look that directors give you when they don't want to hear anymore. And I realized, oh, this must be part of the story, but he's not going to tell me what it is. And of course, in the course of the movie, you realize it is part of the story.
0: Adam Gopnik is the author of The Real Work on the Mystery of Mastery, available on the page, on the Kindle, or in the ear, as is from Pushkin Industries. So many Steve's afternoons with Steve Martin. Pushkin always doing a great job breathing life into these works beyond just a transcript read aloud. Adam, thanks again. Mike, it's It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. And we have more Adam Gopnik for our Pesca Plus subscribers. When I started Pesca Plus, I said, there are often so many interviews that we cut to 16, 17, 18 minutes, just cause that's the amount of time that I decided we should have. Not because that's the amount of time that it lasted as a wonderful interview. Gopnik, my talk with Gopnik exemplifies this. So I'll give you 30 plus minutes of the talk you just heard, plus more on the Pesca Plus feed Go to subscribe.mikepaska.com if you're interested. And now the spiel. Daniel Penny is the 24-year-old former Marine who has been charged with manslaughter in the death of Jordan Neely. Neely, a homeless man, entered Penny's subway car, acted hostile and erratic towards passengers, informing them he was hungry, thirsty, and, quote, ready to die. Penny applied a chokehold, but for too long, or too carelessly, resulting in Neely's death. Is Penny guilty of a crime? That is for the criminal justice process to determine. Sorry if that sounds wishy washy, but in today's polarized political and media environment, it's actually a strong rebuke, an unusual rebuke to almost all the coverage and chatter about this case as portrayed in the media. Interpersonally, people are having very fine conversations about it. Is it abundantly clear that Daniel Penny did something wrong? Was it criminal? Again, These are the questions for the courts, the jury, the process to decide. Was it foreseeable? That will be a factor in the decision. Was it understandable? In fact, the entire case, the entire charge of second-degree manslaughter depends on a prosecutor proving Penny knew the chokehold could kill. It's a hard case. It's a hard case to decide whether to even bring the case, and I say that humbly as someone who's not privy to all the evidence. You know who else isn't privy to all the evidence? Alessandra Ocasio-Cortez, who immediately weighed in, calling it a murder, adding on Twitter a reference to the Stanford swimmer whose light sentence led to a recall of a California judge, quote, "...watching media give the Brock Turner treatment for the killing of a homeless man has been nauseating. A person having a record does not excuse killing them, neither does being poor, sick, or homeless." Well, Brock Turner did commit sexual assault. The outrage over him was after a jury trial and after sentencing. Rightly or wrongly, there was at least a process. We know the facts. We understand and allowed the facts to be unearthed because of the process. Here, AOC engages in no process, just a smear and a severe mischaracterization of why anyone would possibly argue that Daniel Penny isn't a murderer. Remember, she called it a murder. The DA didn't even charge murder. There's no way that he could possibly prove murder. The issue is Daniel Penny's state of mind as regards his safety in the moment, and the safety of fellow passengers, and also his understanding of the chokehold he was applying or misimplying, which I'm ready to concede after I hear the evidence. AOC was far from the only public figure to come in with a red-hot tongue of opinion to clang against a really ambivalent anvil. Here was Greg Gutfeld on Fox. You don't know how you would react, right?
1: And everybody has to face the fact that this could happen to them. You could be in this this Marine's shoes. And you know what? Those shoes right now belong
0: to a hero. A hero? He killed a guy on the subway. It doesn't make him necessarily a villain. Doesn't make him a criminal. That's what the process is for. But if you take the fact that he perceived a danger, administered a chokehold, that chokehold resulted in a homicide, none of that adds up to heroism. I mean, if you ask me, do we want more heroes in society? I would say yes. If you ask me, do we want more citizens strangling their fellow citizens on subways? I would certainly say no. But my point isn't that, there are two extreme sides. My point is that there seems to be only two sides elevated when in fact I have had dozens, maybe even a hundred conversations with New Yorkers of all ilk. I even have talked to random strangers on the subway about this. And I have elicited opinions, 95% of which contain words like shame, tragedy, Sad. Sad for both of them. Hard to judge. And yet, here's how NBC News conveys the mood of the city. New Yorkers are split, some calling him a heartless vigilante. Others say he is a hero. But most are saying neither of those things. All should be withholding opinions, but it is hard. It's made harder still when the Daily News is emoting for Jordan Neely, when the New York Post is practically running Daniel Penny's fundraiser, and when the New York Times is commissioning articles like this one by Roxanne Gay. Making people uncomfortable can now get you killed. Uncomfortable? Yeah. That's what Gay meant to argue, as she writes, Jordan Neely, a Michael Jackson impersonator experiencing homelessness, was yelling and, according to some subway riders, acting aggressively on an F train in New York City. Was he making people uncomfortable? I'm sure he was. The people in that subway car prioritized their own discomfort and anxiety over Mr. Neely's distress. This is propaganda. Which is when the plain facts of a situation are twisted and misrepresented to serve a purpose other than delivering a reasonable assessment of a situation. The severely mentally ill homeless man screaming on the subway who announced he was ready to die was doing more than causing discomfort but I do salute Gay for using the active voice as opposed to the experiencing homelessness phrase. I'm sure she was tempted to write that the angry screaming man was causing discomfort to be felt. Matt Gates told the story of the subway choking in his propagandistic style on his podcast, asking listeners if they could be brave enough to quote, do your duty as a free American. Marine US Patriot Daniel Penny probably asked himself similar questions and he decided to act. Gates went on to describe the aftermath of that action. Daniel is even on video providing due care and releasing this person from the hold, even trying to wake him up after he was subdued. Killed, not subdued, Congressman. The word you're looking for is killed. AOC on the left, Gates on the right, Gay in the New York Times, Gutfeld on Fox, all making the same process mistake to come to wildly Different conclusions. My personal journey in this matter was to immediately say that it's hard to ascertain Penny's culpability. When I was exposed to the opinion of AOC and others on the left, that's I guess how my Twitter feed is oriented, those are the newspapers I subscribe to, I immediately reacted. I said this is ridiculous but I caught myself and I said don't overreact to obviously unfair characterizations. Don't be so revolted by propaganda that you go too far in the other direction. I mean, my God, Roxanne Gay's description was such an obvious mischaracterization. It would be tempting to then say, you know what, we gotta reject every conclusion that stems from that line of thinking. So now all of a sudden we're on Team Gutfeld. I mean, also, maybe there's someone like me, or someone who feels sorry for Neely, as, by the way, we all should, or who is also, like me, uncomfortable with a world of even honorably discharged former Marines meeting out fatal justice on mass transit, and maybe that person first heard Gates or Gutfeld overstate their side's case. Well, that person should also guard against saying, well then, Daniel Penny certainly is innocent of all crimes. But it is tempting, it is tempting to think that. That's how polarization works. That's how intensity of opinion works. To to look at Gates and Gutfeld, perhaps two characters who aren't looked upon kindly by the average GIST listener and say, for those guys to make such extreme arguments in such facile ways, well, that must mean the entirety of their point, i.e. the guiltlessness of Daniel Penny, well, that must be worthless. It may seem like the spiel is falling into that very unsatisfying trap of the centrist, the mushy middle. I'm not saying the truth must be somewhere in between. I'm saying the truth can be anywhere on the spectrum from manslaughter to, well, if not hero, to fully exonerated and properly exonerated. We don't know. They don't know. And the outlets that pay them to bray on and to describe... This very nuanced and hard-to-parse occurrence is very simple. and a battle of good versus evil, they're all doing us a disservice. So I say let's use this tragedy to retain our humanity and our dignity by engaging in discernment. That's it for today's show. Corey Wara produces The Gist, and Joel Patterson is the senior producer of The Gist. Michelle Pesca is in charge of lobster husbandry for Peach Fish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com/slash The Gist. Um Peru, G peru, peru, and thanks for listening.